This is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today, we are going to be talking about James Fenimore Cooper's 1826 novel, The Last of the Mohicans, which is about whatever D.H. Lawrence tells us it's about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, not really. Yeah, both yes and no. It's a libertarian fantasy about magical Indians and <laughs> whiteness. White people are better indians than indian people you've seen that movie before oh <laughs> uh, yeah more of it here okay so sorry for the business but just a couple programming notes before we get started we are back now from our mid-season break but slightly longer than we were planning but you know we have these situations such as covid <laughs> little kids starting school little kids getting covid a starting school <laughs> us moving <laughs> We all have full-time jobs, bozos. It's been a crazy <laughs> summer. We're super stoked for the rest of the season. We're going to crank out episodes. It's going to be great, but bear with us. Be nice. Don't email us. We might need to spread some episodes out a bit more than we usually do. Yeah. You're communists. You know how that is. Don't get on us about work ethic or whatever. You don't, you know, you, we don't make any money <laughs> doing this. And then, okay, promo. We have stickers and buttons. If you write us a review on either your preferred podcast platform or somewhere else on the internet where people will see it, not Pornhub. And if you send us a <laughs> screenshot of the review. <laughs> That's fine, actually, with me. <laughs> it's funny. I, I'm sure there's overlap. <laughs> Pay for your porn, actually. Send us a screenshot to betterredpodcast at gmail.com along with your mailing address. We will send you our rad, commie, better than dead stickers and buttons. Rock the book jerk button or the Frankenstein large adult son button with us. Or uh, tell someone that you like them more than Trotsky with a incredibly cute heart-shaped sticker. Yep. It's good stuff. And I've said it before, but people actually compliment my mom and her little book jerk button all the time. And it's <laughs> That's really too, sweet. too cute. Anyway, we're talking about this big dumb book. So Katie, why did we read it? <laughs> okay, why did we read it? Why did we? Okay, no. So reread it for you and me. Yes. First time for me. First time last time. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> First time last time. Are you sure about that? I have to show the two of you my post-it, my post-it, because <laughs> that is, yep, yeah, we yeah. got some, we got, is, we got post-its. Yeah. So I have been waiting and a long time to do Cooper, and part of the reason is because it's so long. But I'm very excited for this for many reasons and wanted to do it for many reasons. But it coincided perfectly with me going back to grad school, which is you know not especially relevant to everyone else, but. Uh, it's very relevant to me. Um, and so this is kind of a special one because the first grad class I ever took was Cooper, Hawthorne, and James, which is an unbeatable combination. I'm sorry, Henry James? The very same. That is weird. I'm trying to imagine I'm trying to imagine who I think taught this. But also that's that's like, you know, great, great, awful. That's a that's an interesting trio. <laughs> yeah. uh, and also like awful, I yeah. can't like stylistically or or whatever you want to say like yeah. James and Cooper are so far apart. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
like I, I mean Hawthorne and James stylistically too, but at least I can see some conversation there. I the, the I bet Henry James didn't hate Hawthorne though. You know, like I bet you can you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no he liked Hawthorne quite a bit and wrote wrote a little little book on him slim little volume, but it worked somehow. It worked some uh, mm-hmm. weirdly. Mm-hmm. There's like haunted house stuff happening in in both things. It was taught by Myra Jalen, who oh pff, amazing makes sense, and yes, who's totally amazing. And who introduced us in that class to the her five eighths rule as applied to Cooper. And she's just like, okay, so Cooper is kind of bad. Like she said it more elegantly. He wrote better than he knew. He, you know, like all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah. But her five eighths rule is that if you're introduced to a character and you can like recognize five eighths of the character before you actually read the book that it's gonna have commercial success like it's gonna be popular mm. okay yeah. yeah 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 it's a fair rule that was that's why the cinematic universe model works right <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly i have another rule from that time i it's more of a figure than a rule but it's the seventh friend it, it comes from a um a law and order criminal intent episode where there was a dinner party seven people were invited it was three couples and a third person and needless to say or that other person is always going to be the murderer like if you have a seventh friend situation that guy did it Mm -hmm. so anyway Mm -hmm. you're welcome this is free (laughs) it's the five sisters phenomenon oh yeah (laughs) yeah somebody's got to be lydia yeah Yeah. exactly exactly. (laughs) yes and someone's also got to be a cat who everyone just uh kitty who everyone just uh (laughs) (laughs) go away what are you doing in this book (laughs) get out of the book the book itself there is both everything and nothing interesting happening here Mm -hmm. yep which i am very excited to talk about the best part of it and i know you two will get into some of this but so it when you start the book, you're like you get some you get some history, and then it looks like you're gonna get some like manly man adventure, and then yakety sack starts playing, and everyone's <laughs> changing into other everyone's clothes and a bear costume. Yeah. It's great. A skinny motherfucker is like singing "Hey Nani Nani" in the middle of a guerrilla warfare. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> just a bolt like something whizzing projectiles whizzing <laughs> by your ears as you're like <laughs> doing your little little songs yeah. through the woods yeah. yeah so good amazing so you're you're both welcome yeah, yeah. <laughs> for good and for all i had read this yeah. book before this however is in the grand better read than dead tradition in that it is old mm-hmm. it is stupid <laughs> yep. it is racist mm-hmm. and it is unknowingly hilarious oh yeah 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 the best scenes are two that are (laughs) truly three stooges-esque in which a guy puts on a bear suit and his friends and enemies are genuinely shocked to find out that their old pal friendly bear is in fact a guy in a bear suit (laughs) they really don't know like it's it's a long con. I don't know if it's Looney Tunes or the Three Stooges, but yeah, it's a, but, but it but it thinks it's or like, Benny Hill who yeah, has all yeah, already yeah, yeah. We're five minutes in. Yeah, like, yeah, or Benny Hill, but it's like, but it but it thinks that it's doing this awesome serious action drama. It's like no, <laughs> no, it's just a guy in a bear suit. It's a guy in a bear suit. There's also a guy who dresses up in a beaver suit. 
<laughs> yeah, and and also they get very confused um, yep. they, that there's a, they come across a, a bunch of beaver dams. And they're like, oh, a Mohawk Village. <laughs> and it's like, no, like, no. it's beaver dams, you dumb shit. <laughs> I've like, seen a beaver dam. Like, this is not a crazy thing to have seen in the U.S. And it's no, like, no. that, it's, what? Well, it's, it's awesome. It's, he's almost doing one of those things that, like, you see some 19th century writers do where like right where they're i mean we don't have cameras yet but that like ooh, like the close-up is this interesting thing but it's like no dude there's no vantage point where you're gonna mistake a beaver no. colony for no. like a human village zero, zero circumstances zero uh, unless it's a unless it's looney tunes yeah yeah <laughs> the guy in the beaver suit also fools everyone which is apparently an ancient Indian secret that I have not been let in on yet. I do not have access to this. Oh. I have also learned that other writers have said so many insane things about Cooper. <laughs> Mark Twain says basically like, I hope you got paid $4 for every time a twig gets broken in this book. <laughs> Oh. He, he says, when a twig doesn't snap, it's a restful chapter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Twain, Twain, I know you're going to get into this, Katie, but Twain just fucking like d- destroys destroys <laughs> it. And thank, my father pointed this out to me, and I'm thank you for that, Martin, because it was yeah. so worth it. Yeah. And the king of fascies, David. Herbert Lawrence himself <laughs> also had opinions and this man has opinions about things that are the kind of opinions that are unthinkable to anyone else. Yeah. I would suggest that they in fact are far more racist than this book itself. Uh, Amazingly, yes. 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 And so in his he has this book called Studies in Classic American Literature which I recommend that all of you find immediately because it is one of the funniest things I've ever read in my whole life. (laughs) So he says, this is the perpetual blood brother theme of the Leatherstocking novels, Natty and Chingashgook, The Great Serpent. At present, it is a sheer myth. Why he means it at present is like 1926. (laughs) He is not living in the same period of time as Cooper. (laughs) The red and the white capital are capital W. Are not blood brothers, even when they are most friendly. When they are most friendly, it is as a rule the one betraying his race spirit to the other. This is where you start to hear David, like, hear D.H. Lawrence at his most like, oh no. Yeah, yeah. In the white man, rather highbrow, who loves the Indian, one feels the white man betraying his own race. One does not feel that, (laughs) by the way. One does not. If one is D.H. Lawrence, one feels that one's whiteness is under threat yeah. constantly. Yeah. One would have to strain to feel that. Oh my God. One would have to be rather invested in the sustenance of whiteness to do that. Yes, one would fash. have to be. Yeah. There's something unproud, underhand in it. Renegade. This He likes one-word sentences mm. because he's a fascist. What he can manage. That's merely prose. <laughs> yeah. The same with the Americanized Indian who believes absolutely in the white mode. It is a betrayal. Renegade again. What are you talking about? Fragment again. Well, he says, 
In the actual flesh, it seems to me the white man and the red man cause a feeling of oppression, the one to the other, no matter what the good will. Obviously, this goes both ways. In exactly the same manner, the red life flows in a different direction from the white life. Does it? <laughs> you can't make two streams that flow in opposite directions meet and mingle soothingly. He's always thinking about crossing streams, isn't he? He's yeah. always thinking about crossing streams. Yeah. yeah. And all I will say at the end of my moment is this is the same David Herbert Lawrence who thought Jonathan Swift was serious about stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Like doo doo undies. Yep. So make of that what you will. The moral there, I think, is that fascism makes you dumb. And also dumb people are fascists. <laughs> you know, like, it makes you so dumb that it's like yeah. psychedelic. Yeah. Yeah, truly. Yeah. The kaleidoscope before my eyes. <laughs> Bad <Yep>. opinions. <laughs> of the worst readings of literature. He also says in this book that like it's a white whale in Moby Dick because Melville is concerned about shoring up whiteness and i'm like yeah herman the melville. same guy who wrote benito serena mm -hmm. herman fucking melville yeah. also moby dick is not like, yeah no 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 yeah just know it's about a whale that's white yeah. is that the whole thing does he also, know what happens like, to the whale i mean there are approximately 200 correct answers to the question what is moby dick about none of them is yeah. Why not white people? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Zero. That is not a correct answer. That's like no. the only one. No. You don't even get partial credit for that. No, no. You get no. zero credit. You get an <laughs> You get C me on the top of your paper. <laughs> you get an F for fascist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, so I'm sorry, Tristan. Yeah. yeah. Why'd you want to read it? Katie, you uh, you as the New Jersey, you know, native of New Jersey <laughs> person did not Tell us again how Cooper has a New Jersey Turnpike rest stop named after him, which, you know, you've noticed an American knighthood. So I'm going to drop that in because we just we can't say that enough. You know, <laughs> but I think, I think it's around exit four or so. <laughs> so, yeah. Why did I want to read it? Uh, guys, I was so amped. We were doing Last of the Mohicans. I love this movie so much. I mean, come on, that soundtrack. 18th century siege battles, a film about the goddamn Seven Years' War. You got Daniel Day-Lewis and Madeline Stowe, hot, right? West Studi is amazing. That movie is total porn for 18th centuries. And then I remembered we're a literature podcast, and no, <laughs> we're, we're not. It'll take me way more wow. than two hours. <laughs> we're not doing the, the baller Michael Mad film, um, which, as Katie said before, is his total dad movie. <laughs> <laughs> No, we're doing the interminable and fucking awful James Fenimore Cooper uh, OG. Let's put that in scare quotes novel. I have avoided Cooper for literally decades. Everyone I know who's read him. Missing much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Everyone I know who's read him, including, yeah, Mark Twain, is like, <laughs> dude, he sucks. He has no idea how human beings talk or, or act or even what a novel really is. And, and I believed him. I 100% believe them. And they are correct. <laughs> this shit is like if Walter Scott were very dumb and a terrible writer. And honestly, I feel bad even putting Sir Walter's name in the comparison with this shit. Like, and Walter Scott knew from dumb people. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. He I mean, fucked with a lot of dumb people. No, yeah. And, I mean, he knew how to have dumb thoughts. But then at the end oh, of the yeah. day, he also knew how to write a smart book. Which totally. Which Co Cooper does not. <laughs> he yeah. was good at writing novels. Yeah, yeah. He, yes, exactly. Which 
Sir Jersey Turnpike rest stop James Fenimore. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Turnpike. Yeah, Sir Turnpike. <laughs> In all seriousness, uh, while as literature, this book sucks shit, like unequivocally so. And while its <laughs> politics are, what do I want to say, bad and racist, <laughs> I, I do find a lot of it historically interesting, both the period it takes up as its setting and the period that Cooper is writing it in. So the Seven Years' War, I'm sorry, we're in the U.S., so we have to call it der, the French and Indian French and War. Indian War. <laughs> because yep. yuck, yuck, we were fighting the French and the Indians, yuck, yuck, yuck. Like, <laughs> we are such fucking yokels. It's, it's amazing. But yeah, the, the Seven Years' War, it's a fascinating- Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I know, for sure. For sure. The Seven Years' War is, a, is, is really is a fascinating, bizarre conflict. It's, it's kind of the first global war between these vast and emergingly capitalist empires, but with, you know, uh, predictably fucked up in Byzantine causes. So that's interesting. Cooper makes also all these weird changes to the historical record, like IRL, the Iroquois <laughs> nations largely allied with the British and the Lenape, whom Cooper calls the Delawares, largely allied with the French. And he flips that for reasons <laughs> like I don't entirely get. But as writing, my God, it's awful. Hawkeye tells us he's a, quote, white man with no cross. Literally every time he opens his fucking mouth. <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> he's like, I'm white, by the way. I'm white. No, Have you I'll noticed no, that I, I'm white? Katie, I was saying, like, before we started, that a character will be like, oh, Hawkeye, those are nice shoes. It's really like, ah, as a white man with no cross, <laughs> but who knows these woods as good as any tribesman, I would not <laughs> go out. He just wrote in D'Angelo, so he has to start with every sentence yeah. with, as a white person. That's right. <laughs> That's right. He read White Fragility. Yeah. No, he, <laughs> he's doing something else with that. But also, this is another amazing thing. This Chud wanted to give Lake George in New York a cool Indian name. But he thought the actual Mohawk name was too hard, so he said the natives called it Horican, and no, they no. didn't. <laughs> that is not what they called no. it. So. But what if they did? <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun for James Fenimore Cooper? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, <laughs> the actual Mohawk name was Andia Terokte, which like, okay, that doesn't sound, you know, I YouTube didn't got my head around that, so, yeah. you know, but... <laughs> I think that's too many syllables yeah. for uh, James Turner, Mark Cooper. Yeah. First class, Chud. This will be a fun episode. <laughs> I can't. I cannot wait. I'm delighted. And today, so we're talking about historicalness, historicity, however big, broad, place and location, and the sort of inventions and masculinity that this book is invested in. So, Katie, tell us what happens. Get ready. Because <laughs> twigs, guys in bear suits. Yeah, there's some twig. There's twigs to be had. If you want twigs, get ready. Okay, so the novel opens, and we're in the 1750s, and it, we're in the woods of New York. So you know this is going to be a very sexy time, just from the top. <laughs> and Cooper delivers. He kicks us off with a little bit of racist history and <laughs> saying some stuff about the woods. And as a side note, please always check for ticks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You don't want to... Lyme disease, which they did not have in the 18th century. They had other terrible things, but uh, it's no joke. Yeah. Check for ticks. Yeah. So you don't want to get that. <laughs> this is ticks. also the origin story. This is the ancient Indian burial ground that will come up in all other haunted house <laughs> novels for the rest of ever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and wait, hark on the distance. Is that Genuine's pony I hear? No, <laughs> it's not. 
Channing Tatum comes up in a lot on this podcast. <laughs> it is somehow. <laughs> no, but the hor- horsey feet are clip clopping. The horsies are carrying Cora and Alice Monroe, the blonde and brunette sister duet nobody needed, but everybody knew was coming. And as a side note, outfits are very hilarious in this book, just overall. And the wind does some amazing shit with their veils in the opening scene. I mean, it plays peekaboo. It's just great. <laughs> We find this out later, but Cora, who is the brown-haired one, ha- is a Monroe's daughter from his first marriage. So Cora has West Indian heritage. So to the novel, she is mixed race in this very particular way because she's part black and from the West. It, and it com- her heritage comes from the West Indies. So we'll get back to this. Good. I'm glad because I do have questions about what Cooper does think he's doing with that, (laughs) you know, like, I feel like he thinks he's making a bolder statement uh, than he actually is. Well, she, we know she can't survive the novel. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, You know, that's, I think, part of that. Yep. And people were, uh, reviewers were pissed, by the way, about that somewhat. That she died? Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. But she's, but the tragic mulatto. When they reviewed it, they didn't know that that was. <laughs> I will also say, like from Sir Walter, like she definitely doing the like Alice Saxon blood will live, Cora yeah. dark, like you know, more, like sexier but in a threatening way must die, you know, <laughs> must so. die, must die. He had read Sir Walter. He had. He read and imbibed Sir For Walter. Sure. My dog Gertrude Stein just came in to be like, the book sucks, huh? Like, <laughs> yes. Aww. Gertrude Stein does. I love her. I would love to have a few drinks and pick her up like a baby. (laughs) (laughs) She's as heavy as my two and a half year old. (laughs) And I love to pick her up. (laughs) I know. Starling. Okay, so anyway, back to the book. We meet here Duncan Hayward, who's a young. Yep. mm -hmm. He's this young military dude who works for their dad, uh, Colonel Monroe. So. The thing about Duncan is that whenever a woman is around, you can absolutely bet he's going to get sunned by Hawkeye. (laughs) But we will get to that. The dad is the big cheese at Fort William Henry, if you don't even know who their dad is. (laughs) (laughs) So he is taking them to Senator McCain at the fort for Mm -hmm. the rendezvous. And so they, they have a guide. They have an Indian guide. His name is Magua or Leonard Subtil, which is basically the sneaky fox, which is basically he's named guy who's going to betray you is his name. Yeah. They're also with David Gamut, who just sings psalms all the time. And he's a gigantic <laughs> doofus. And it rules how much this is true. Yeah. He, he definitely is there for comic relief. But the comedy is... More about how stupid the idea of the character is than what <laughs> Cooper. It, it, even in yeah, like yeah. the comic relief moments, the comedy is coming from somewhere other than what Cooper thought it was going to be coming <laughs> yes. from. You know, yes. he's he's very he's his special guy. Yeah, both of them. So anyway, it's getting dark, and weirdly, the dude named Sneaky Betray You, who we've all been following, <laughs> has not located the fort just yet. But wait, there's a guy who's dressed insanely. We come across <laughs> Hawkeye. It's Hawkeye. <laughs> it's God. Natty Bumpo, who has 72 nicknames about how long his rifle is. <laughs> and 
But and, hey, did somebody say last of the Mohicans? You're about to meet him. Hold did somebody on. say handsome white guy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying. white, by the way. It says Hawkeye. Yeah, Just so you know, yeah, yeah, I'm a yeah. white person without yeah. a cross. Never believe it. <laughs> um, yes. So Hawkeye, who is white, he'll tell you himself, is out with another pair. It's big day out with Daddy again. It's Chingachuk and Uncas. So Chingachuk is basically like Natty Bumpo's friend through a bunch of the novels. Mm-hmm. He's like his guy. Like, you know how you have your guy? Well, that's his guy. Yeah. And Uncas is his son. And one of these two gentlemen is the last of the Mohicans. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, sorry, I was just going to like to. And again, I, like Cooper does weird things with the actual like the historical like versions of these these nations. But I, I think that the Mohicans are like kind of originally from like what's now like the kind of Connecticut area. Like they're they're sort of an East Coast tribe right and yes part of the deal is that they you know we're, we're in like what in the 1750s kind of like a western frontier of like upstate new york so basically with like new england colonization they've kind of gotten moved into uh with the like kind of iroquois territory is that roughly the situation that is roughly the situation which is complicated by the french and indian war part of things mm-hmm. so part of the reason for the moving around is a little bit like alliance related in the novel. Okay. Right. Gotcha. To separate that from real life. <laughs> <laughs> so we have, we've met the last of the Mohicans, but unfortunately we learn that. So I am in this book. I gave them directions. <laughs> <laughs> Woman driver. Yep, yeah. So um, it, it turns out they've been going the, opposite direction the full opposite direction and you'll never find the fort with two first names then (laughs) so hayward is like what no way and hawkeye is like hey why don't we all go around and say our names one more time and then i'm gonna let you guess about what happened here (laughs) (laughs) so yada yada Duncan is going to arm wrestle Magua to see what's up. He like p- climbs up his arm to do like he's going to they're going to wrestle, but he doesn't even get to second base. And Magua figures out that he needs to run because he's been found out, which is weird because he took so many precautions to avoid this <laughs> outcome. So Hawkeye's going to get them to Fort William Henry, but first they have to kill a horse and escape Magua and the Hurons. There is so much sneaky sneaking and talking about how good Hawkeye is at shooting, but not shooting anything. And David Gamut being a dipshit, getting shot. Yep. They're still trying to escape to the fort. Things are not going their way. And they engage in the classic about to be captured activity of cave hiding. So Alice and Cora are hanging out with David, singing guy, Billy Big Mouth Bass, while the rest of them go out to fight. And I don't know who has it worse here. Hawkeye is naturally uh, way too good at shooting rifles to be anything but a James Fenimore Cooper creation. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, they only had invented guns magazine then, not guns and ammo, because they have no ammo. Oops. I just, what was that? What was that fucking uh, for terrifying mercenary magazine, Soldier of Fortune? There's actually a magazine called Soldier of Fortune. 
about mercenaries, about and for mercenaries. I think it still exists. But, but I'm just, that's a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think that. Sorry. Should I, I got too deep right there, didn't I? Yeah, like, a no, it's bit. not soldier. It's, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. But I just, I feel like Hawkeye would have been on the 1750 cover of Soldier of I think he would have been on every cover. (laughs) (laughs) He's the playmate of the year. (laughs) Yeah, yes, yes, full spread, yeah. He sure is. He's the Burt Reynolds of (laughs) Soldier (laughs) (laughs) of He has the biggest mustache. Okay, yes, (laughs) but anyway, no ammo. We're back to no ammo. We've gone from that to no ammo land, so it's a big yikes. And so Alice and Cora are like, okay, time to see our dad now. And Hawkeye and Chingachuk and Uncas, they're like, bye. Hayward stays. In one of the funniest stealing shit scenes in American literature, we hear find out about Natty's long rifle. Natty Bumpo's long rifle. La Long Carabine is what his rifle and he are called. Both yeah. of them have the same nickname. Both of them. Of both n- of them a lot of nicknames. Same. A lot of nicknames yeah. for the same people in this book. Yep, a lot of nicknames for the same people, and they're they're guns. (laughs) (laughs) And also, like, a lot of... Why in French now? (laughs) Yeah. Because for sophistication. (laughs) No wonder D.H. Lawrence loved this book so much. (laughs) I have a long gun and some French words. Not afraid to use either. Yeah. So when the Magua sort of, like, they're found... And he's being very golem about the rifle. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is it is definitely precious. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So at this point, Hayward is trying to let the group that he's the band that he's leading to let Alice and Cora go. Do you even know who their dad is? Et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> In fact, Magua does know who their dad is, and that's the problem. <laughs> He hates him for good reasons. But so they're trying to negotiate and he wants to embarrass him. And he's like, uh, and he also kind of is into Cora. And he's like, I want to marry Cora. I feel there is a racial angle we have not explored in this novel. (laughs) We are in a novel, by the way. I know it. You know it. Only David Gamut doesn't know it. He thinks he's in Godspell. So let's leave him alone. Cooper does love to announce that we're in a novel. Oh, yeah. Just the most. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... He could have used an editor so bad. I just did like the first page of a bunch of chapters and I'm like, this could have absolutely been a third the length that it is. He could have used an editor, an intro to creative writing class, mm-hmm. more of a brain, like a, a, a less smooth brain would have. Yeah, that would have helped. Bridges, <laughs> ruffles and such. <laughs> could have been less up the butt of this character who is not appealing to me in any way and yet is the the brave woodsman with no cross who for, for 40 years has fought these lads as, as true as any as any mohawk uh, <laughs> white man big gun okay if you read this if like this, anyone announcing they're white this much should not in fact ever turn out to be white yeah but he but then right. the, yeah no i know i mean this is like he this guy like we've said this many times in our in our group chats about this but who this guy is like 21st century version is a some white racist libertarian who oh oh but i'm part cherokee like that's totally. that's who this dude would be in, in modern times absolutely <laughs> yep 
brilliant of Michael Mann, though, to cast a Brit. For real. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. That's the only call. Like, don't cast an American because yeah. that would, like, <laughs> fuck up the, yeah. the racial hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. It should have been an Irish person, actually. But yeah. Yeah. Better luck next time on our remake of Blast the Mohicans. Anyway. Oh, okay. So we have our marriage proposal. Yeah. We have The Bachelor. But Cora first says, ew, he did not go to Jared before he proposed. <laughs> so that's a no. But before things get too serious, is that the pew pew of rescue I hear in the distance? It is. <laughs> Our three BFFs are back and boy, can Hawkeye go pew pew like nobody else. <laughs> yep. So they get away, but our problems are not over. Once we get to William Henry. Ho, 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 mon ami. Baguette. <laughs> Cheese. The French. The French under Montcalm have attacked the fort. <laughs> Can I dork out real quick here? Oh, by all means. <laughs> so, this is going to be about boats then, though. <laughs> it's not. It's only tangentially about boats. No, but first. <laughs> I was just going to say the man film really does great stuff with the French. So, General Le Marquis de Montcalm, he does this whole thing where, like, when he and Monroe meet, where he does this elaborate, like, bow, like, and his, like, hat <laughs> touches the ground, and then Monroe, the dour Scot, just, like, nods at him. <laughs> but I mean, just, that's good as hell. It good is. For no, him. It, it, again, like, it's, it's sort of like, it was a vibes-based adaptation where Michael Mann was like, what if this were good? And I'm <laughs> yeah. But, you know what, what I was going to, what I was going to say is like, why is this fort out in the, you know, basically in the middle of the forest? And so basically, like what's happening <laughs> militarily is you have uh, New France, Quebec uh, and, and Montreal, like right across the border. And then British North America is, is to the south. And so you like basically could send a fleet up the Hudson and the army up the Hudson. But and then, you know, you're trying to get to like the St. Lawrence to fuck with the French. But basically, so what you needed to do was go overland to like the Finger Lakes in New York. And then via the Finger Lakes, you would have a route up to Quebec. And so that's why they built these giant Uncle Toby ass fortifications. <laughs> <laughs> what was quite far from the main European settlements. I mean, that's one thing when I like first watched that film. It's like, wait, why? This is weird. Why is there this massive like military campaign that uh, it doesn't seem like it's by like major ports or whatever? So that's why we're out in the luxurious and very fancy resort area of the Finger Lakes. Doing this. Yeah, you have to go to both the verdant American side of Niagara Falls and the trashly, trashy Ripley's Believe It or Not Canadian side of Niagara Falls. Exactly. Yep. That's that's what we're doing. Yep. <laughs> Sorry that I know I won't dork out about the Seven Years War anymore. Today. What else are you going to do? I have hilarious stories about niagara falls that are also not gonna yeah, continue <laughs> well let's circle back in real life oh no it's only because i got married at niagara falls yeah yeah i knew it i knew that I because knew i you. like to think of my life as living in a screwball a 1930s screwball comedy yeah 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 no oh, definitely no that's a great so also did i think Jim and Pam in the office got married in Niagara Falls, too. They did. I think they actually got married on The Maid of the Mist, which is yes, actually kind yes. of like a beautiful you know, it's, yeah, I mean, boat. As, as sort of like touristy shit goes, like that, that is kind of cool for sure. Yeah. You know? I also like, I have a very, very high kitsch adoration. Yeah, oh and no, I nothing's better than Niagara. Yeah, for sure. 
I have to ask because I am going to say this later, but like it's another like stone thought I had. But I feel like this novel is only historical. Like it doesn't respond to readings as a novel. Yeah. Well, because there aren't, I mean, they're not characters. Right. Like, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's like, if you're talking about this book, you have to be a fake historian. Like, you're not really talking about literature. No, no. It, it's, oh, yeah, it's only interesting as a historical document. And I do, I don't know, the, the Oxford edition, which has this, I mean, I think it was written in like 1980, and it's this very fucking lib, like, you know, both sides each. I mean, it, it's wicked racist, but like. Sure. <laughs> The editor is basically saying that this, you know, this had some sort of like political impact or resonance with the Cherokee stuff in the 1820s. I mean, Jackson isn't president yet, but like that, the, the removal act was it was like building towards. And I'm just I totally believe that. But I'm just like, OK, so how would this shit have been used or interpreted by those kinds of forces i don't i mean maybe with the idea of like the last so like we're well that's the pen hmm. like we're you know but i mean again i totally believe the claim even though i think the rest of that introduction sucks but i'm just like i just don't i don't quite have my head around how that would have worked but anyway i mean that's hard for me to buy given like the history that i know about the conflicts within the cherokee nation yeah. the fucking I don't mean conflict. I mean capo. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I would get yelled at if I said that, but yeah, that the removals are in part because of that. Yeah. And to think, you know, the removal ash, which really affects primarily the five civilized tribes, right? Which is like a thousand miles away. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. Maybe we can. We'll see if we can have a thought about that. Yeah. I, I don't quite get it, but. Cooper had very weird ideas about. I only heard the very last part, but he had very yeah. we weird ideas about the. Okay, no, I mean maybe yeah, maybe we'll get there. But Cooper had weird ideas about something. <laughs> you don't say. Okay, where the fuck are we? I think we had just said before I dorked out about the Seven Years' War about the French, uh, the, for the French under Montcalm have attacked the fort. Is I think where you were at. Yeah. Okay. Yes, they have attacked the. Yes. So they've attacked the fort. They're reunited. Alice and Cora are reunited with their dad, Monroe. And it's a veil of tears worthy of Harriet Beecher Stowe moment <laughs> for sure. Yes. It's a, it's a cry sack. Yeah. One of the things about this novel that doesn't get, I think is maybe like good fodder for exploration is the way it fits into the sentimental tradition. Yeah. Because it feels like more like, it feels like a romance in the, Walter Scott way. So that's that is certainly not like independent of the sentimental no. tradition, right? No, no, I think there's a lot of lot of overlap between uh romance of that mode and the sentimental novel on on both sides of the Atlantic. Certainly. Certainly. So they can't spend too long at the daddy-daughter dance because the French <laughs> are stacked and jacked and they're probably going to lose the fort. This is the time that Hayward decides he's going to tell Monroe he wants to marry Alice, the blonde one. And Monroe decides to tell him about Cora being biracial. The don't let war stop you from having boys night and tickling <laughs> each other and telling secrets is the motto here. 
I like her. I like her too. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, can we just talk about that briefly here? Yeah, the, it's in chapter yeah. 16. And like, yeah, so Duncan, the Royal American Major. <laughs> Sorry. He's like, yeah, Colonel Monroe, I want to marry your hot daughter. He's like, ah, son, my lassie <laughs> daughter. She's, and he's like, oh, no, I, I meant the blonde. And then he's like, oh, you're, because that's because you're a Virginian and you're a fucking racist. I mean, like, literally, he says, Major Hayward, you are yourself born at the South where these unfortunate beings are considered of an inferior, of a race inferior to your own. I mean, like, one, it's, you know. I'm not going to give like all kinds of like abolitionist credit to this. And again, like part of the thing is Cora can't survive the novel. But I also did. I mean, Katie, you said the people were like mad. Well, kind of about the core character. I was like this. Actually, I mean, I'm sure this is the kind of thing that would piss like with like some white racists off in the 1820s. And there is like an at least like sort of implicitly anti-slavery line there. Which is just strange amid the novel's other racializations, you know? Yeah. It sailed by contemporary readers. I mean, really? all of this that you think would be controversial, it sailed by. Cooper was the wow. man. It just, yeah, it did. In the United States at this moment, that surprises me. Like, in, in it would surprise me a little bit too in Britain, but it's, you know, again, the, the racial politics are somewhat different. That kind of surprised me that people weren't like, you know, fucking pro slavery assholes weren't more like freaked out by that. By Cooper. It's bizarre. Okay. So, there's, I can't remember what piece of criticism it's from, but it's like somebody in the 60s said that miscegenation is the secret theme of the novel. And to be able mm -hmm. to say it's the secret theme is like the secret theme. Yeah. Well, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's the, yeah. not I at mean, all secret theme. Because this is only mentioned like once, but it then does kind of set the trajectory. I mean, you kind of, that is the kind of moment where you're like, oh, I, okay. Like, so Cora is like the tragic sort of heroine that's not going to survive this, which is like definitely rooted in the, you know, kind of her racial otherness. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, that's all right. <laughs> also, like, I just want to say like this novel has zero secrets. <laughs> no, I no. Just, yeah. Yeah. You know, like it's not something that if you want to do close reading hours with this book, you are not going to do much. Okay. That is not true. Bizarrely. I'm going to give a plug for um, Sarah Rivett's book, Unscripted America, mm -hmm. which has a ton of readings of Last of the Mohicans. And they're like, they're, they're like good close readings, which defies logic and reason. Cooper was like, hiding things from himself. Like anything that's a secret <laughs> yeah. here is also a secret from Cooper, yeah. I guess, is yeah. the actual way to put it. Or yeah. maybe they're just ancient Indian secrets. <laughs> <laughs> like being a beaver. <laughs> like be like be, be the beaver uh, be the beaver okay so duncan and monroe are negotiating with uh montcalm but our time in the samuel L. jackson kevin spacey <laughs> classic is is about to come to a close because montcalm is like if you just get the fuck out and give us the fort we can forget this whole thing ever happened and let's be and I'm definitely being 100% honest. Let's make a treaty and shake hands and spit on our uh, palms. And that's definitely the story that you'll read about in your American history books in which we all speak French now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but, you know, as, as we know, uh, Maguan here working together, he attacks the fort with a contingent of his Huron pals, captures Cora and Alice and kind of massacres everyone. 
David Gamut, in an unsurprising surprise, follows Cora and Alice because like, oh, I said I would protect them. Fiddly diddly dee. <laughs> and so I just the massacre, which, which is real. I mean that that did happen as the as the British were retreating from Fort William Henry. It's the French's fault. I mean, like the people attacking are are kind of you know are made of people led by Magua, but like fucking Montcalm knows this is going to happen. And is like, I, I mean, you know, really does it try? I mean, they're like, he does nothing to like sort of like try to prevent it. And and I kind of do feel like some of the more like shocking acts of violence in this, there's, you know, like it definitely does racist things around like kind of, uh, you know, like the, the, how the natives are kind of characterizing that. But it also does pin a lot of that, I think, on the war in European powers as well. I mean, again, I don't. Like I'm not I so like so actually it's it's quality it's politics are quite good. I'm not saying that I, in any way shape or form, but I did I, like I did think that that was at least kind of interesting and just kind of trying to think of again like the politics of the 1820s, like what how that would have landed or what he thought he was doing with that. Yeah, I don't know how much to get into to Cooper now, but okay. So basically, he thought there was a future for Native people, and it's unclear how much he was talking about, you know, intermarrying. Mm-hmm. But it was sort of he lived in Europe. It's Cooper is annoyingly complicated. Yeah, he lived, yeah, yeah, no, sure, sure. He lived in Europe, so it's hard to say what he thinks he's doing, but he is. I think certainly giving he does give like Magua an out and he wants to sort of like give I think he does want to locate the blame. That does make sense. And I think the other thing that might be operative there, too, is a sort of narrative of like the United States against Europe. So like it's less Mm. the kind of politics of racialization and more if British and French didn't give a shit about us Americans, and they, you know, that that it's basically tried to make this like we stand against Europe, and not so much how it's thinking of white native relations and like its understanding of the native there, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the things that kind of trouble it are just like Cooper can't not have like a hot blonde lady, you know, like nothing can't not have. Yeah. Well, it has to. That's the part of the thing where I'm like, oh, this actually feels like part of the tradition of the romance to me. Yeah. Right. That's like why it's genres kind of abut each other. Yeah. No, totally. Yep. So, anyway, yeah. So, Alice and Cora and David there, um, exit pursued by a bear, but no, that's later. So, Hawkeye, Chingachuk, and Uncas, along with Hayward and Monroe, go back to the fort. And they're looking, they're like looking for clues. They're trying to do clues. And Uncas is the real MVP. He's the one who finds the clues. And so they set off to kind of track them over water, which leads to a pretty dank canoe fight. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Hayward hilariously sees some beaver houses and is like, I bet this is where the Hurons are camping. You can see (laughs) they built it all with their flat tails. (laughs) (laughs) Slap, slap, slap. Yep. And he's like, hark in yonder distance, I see mine enemy. And Hawkeye's like, you dumbass, that's where beavers live. And that's singing, David. Because <laughs> he's, he's, he's the skilled woodsman. He knows the difference between a beaver <laughs> dam and a human yep. dwelling. Human beings. <laughs> yeah. You'd never know he was a white man without a cross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, only, <laughs> only a true, true son of the forest Mohican can spot the difference between <laughs> 
people yep. and I yeah. zoom in. And a house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which one's a beaver? Okay. It's kind of amazing. So David's just kind of allowed to like noodle around the Haran camp because they're like, come on, guys, it's David. What's he going <laughs> to do? Come on. But now comes our favorite time. Disguises time. Alice. <laughs> er, <laughs> David has managed to be a little bit useful for once. And he tells, not for once, he's a couple times he comes in. But he tells them that Cora is not there, but it's being held nearby, and that Alice is here with the Hurons, who are allied with the French, and Hayward is like, uh, Bonjour, I'm a doctor. Let me into your caves to peep around. <laughs> and this is the actual exit pursued by a bear. So, they, so they, he sneaks into the camp, is what I'm saying. He pretends to be a French doctor. Hayward pretends to be a French doctor and sneaks into the camp. But there's this thing going on with the bear. And uh, they're being like followed by this bear on the way, and they're like, "That bear, what's up with that? That's, I'm noticing that bear. Oh, what a bear! Wait, what? The bear? The bear came into the cave with fake Doctor Hayward? And what? <laughs> what? This bear is actually Natty Fucking Bumbo himself? Hawkeye? Very serious. Very, very uh, high tension action happening here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'll be, I'll be damned. Hayward also finds Alice, but then Magua jumps in and is like, hey, hands where I can see him and not just because I'm taking you hostage. <laughs> Amazingly, the bear costume bit works on him, though. Amazingly. And Hawkeye, Hawkeye yeah. engages in some light bondage to keep him from coming after them. There's some more funny tricks. Hayward basically shoves Alice into a million blankets and says he's the sick lady that he's supposed to be helping. And uh, she needs some herbs uh, from the forest. They're special herbs, and he can't bring them back. Stop asking questions. He has to bring that blanket <laughs> bundle to the forest. Because we know as soon as we see the native lady that he's supposed to be helping that she's dying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he's like, I can just, like, do a little switcheroony. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Because she's dead AF as soon as he gets there. I will be as fast as humanly possible with the rest of this. So we're back with our friends but um uncas got captured when hayward was playing doctor and th so now they have to go save everybody i have to go save him and they all have to wear each other's clothes so he can escape Blech, for some reason this is like that video of people trying to like keep baby pandas like all in the same pen <laughs> right like you rescue this person and another one falls yeah, out yeah, and then yeah, it's, it's yeah, like it, yeah. it, it, it's french farce shit again it yeah. is it really, I mean, not that this novel ever had the thread, but <laughs> the thread is fully gone at this point. And yet the book is so grueling. It is. It no, is. it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things. It's like, I'm very glad to have read it because the jokes that that spawn out it are great. But that was a painful 400 fucking pages to it's get there. Long. It's It's so grueling. Yeah. For a bunch of people who, when, as soon as you close this book, you forget ever existed on the page. Yeah. Yep. Except for Natty Bumpo, because he's like, you get one character, okay? Yeah. And I'm going to put him in six books so you don't forget. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Here we go. Here's the end. They're wearing everyone else's clothes. Uncas puts on the bear costume. And Hawkeye's like, oh, I get to be David this time. So he puts on his clothes. <laughs> and David will be starring in the role of Uncas. 
who's been captured. <laughs> so <laughs> their plan gets figured out in like five minutes. They get taken prisoner by the Delaware. Nagua shows up and is like, hey, you know which guys I'm looking for? It's the bear costume ones and ladies. and You get it. So then we meet Terminand, who is an old guy who's like the big cheese. And he brings everyone in the Delaware encampment together for something else hilarious. They can't believe that actually they have La Longue Carabine himself, you know? <laughs> and they, but they don't know if it's Hawkeye or Hayward. So they do these manliness contests involving a gourd where Hayward just yep. gets embarrassed as shit. <laughs> yep. And it's awesome. And Tamanund, we know, is the ancient Indian chief because he does not know what pronouns are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, he's, yes. And he's, he's supposed to be like 100 years old, too. He's, um, yeah, he's more than yes. 100 years old. Yeah. Yes. He's 11 billion. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, he's Old Testament old. But he, so Tamanund is like, oh, wow, we've all learned a lot today and seen some <laughs> cool shooty stuff. Um, but Magua can have them. And Cora's like, why hold on here? Uncas looks like he has something to say. So Uncas being the last of them, he can sort of save some of them. He explains he's the last of the tortoise, a family who did the, like, did, actually did the Atlas thing and held up the earth. So it's cooler than the Atlas, but same thing. Like, so he's important. And Uncas is like, hey, Magua can have Cora. Sorry, Cora. That's, that's tough luck. But anyway, what happens is Cora's got to go, but the Delawares are like, you get a head start and we're coming after you tomorrow in the morning. And then there's a big giant battle scene. Here's what happens. Wait, do you, I don't think you talk about this here, but here's one of the things that happens is that David Gamut is like, can I play? I have a slingshot. <laughs> yes! <laughs> yes! Yes, 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 yes. You know, like in the story that yeah. I'm in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, oh, he does. David, he's good. He's gonna be his namesake from the Bible because you know, yeah. Cool Keep man. saying the Jewish kid yeah. in the Bible. Yeah, named David, and I'm like, they're all Jewish kids for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he's. I have of... a slingshot, and Hawkeye is like, mm, yeah. it'll be better if he had a gun. Yeah, it's yeah. David, though, you know, it's probably let's not give David a gun. <laughs> That's probably a really good call. You've seen how he handles things. Yeah. So he's just going to Bart Simpson his way through a seven years war battle. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. But anyway, here's what happens. It's a lot of killing people. They defeat the Huron against like stupid odds. Korra gets killed. Uncas kills the guy who kills her. He had a thing with him. And oh no, Uncas also gets killed. A Hawkeye kills Magua, <laughs> so there's that. And then they have a wedding and a funeral because Cora and Uncas definitely got married in heaven, they say. Yep. yep. Chingachuk is the very sad figure at the end of the novel. And interestingly, it's Taminant who gets the last word. And I'm gonna do a real, real quick one of the end. It is enough, he said. Go children of the Lenape. The anger of the Manito is not done. Why should Taminan stay? The pale faces are masters of the earth. And the time of the red men has not yet come again. My day has been too long. In the morning, I saw the son of Unamis happy and strong. And yet before the night has come, I have lived to see the last warrior of the wise race of the Mohicans. So there we go. Last of the Mohicans, everyone. 
the time of the red man has not yet come again. That was another thing I was again, I like I'm really resisting any effort to like give this book more interesting politics than it has because it just I think it's very it's just dumb, right? <laughs> but so but I was like, okay, what, what is that? I mean, is that positing some sort of assimilation as like Katie, what you were saying, sort of like mm-hmm. kind of intermarriage sort of solution? Is it like some extension of enlightenment stadial history where it's saying that like, oh, this is the Europeans time, but that's not going to last. There's kind of the cyclical version of like human society. Or is it just Cooper being like, I must give him some magical sounding words. I don't know, you know. <laughs> no. Okay, so actually sort of both. And when I, when the, there are those moments where you're like, maybe this is like a little more interesting than I thought. Don't fight it because it's actually, <laughs> it's true. Okay. All right. All right. But not on purpose. It's, imp- I can't even say if on per with like no, yes, in a Cooper <laughs> right. way, you know? Right. Like, I right. wish I could say, I wish I could it's say. Like, well, kind of like D.H. Lawrence, it's like he had a thought that could be smart and go somewhere and he takes it elsewhere, but there's still the, there's still the potential uh, left behind, so, you know? Like. So, so like, here's, here's what he thought. Okay. He thought that. He was very into like the indigenous people of North America because what he thought was that it was going to be this new foundation for Americanness, but not in the way that kind of it seems like he would think. He was very obsessed with their language. And you get a little bit of this in the intro, the metaphorical quality. He thinks like holds more metaphor than than like the degraded European languages. And that what was going to happen is that actually that was going to be the foundation of America, like a new people. It was, oh, it's supposed to be multilingual. His vision was like this multilingual paradise of Natty Bumpos, kind of. Yeah, I'm like, I'm hearing some like Rousseauian shit here a little bit, you know. Yes, it's weird. Because mm-hmm. I wish that I had spent a little bit more time on Cooper, the man. Sure. But also, I don't like, I, <laughs> I'm not a Cooper scholar. God, I'm, <laughs> nor will I ever be. I would not do that to myself. But my sense is that, again, it's interesting potentials here and certainly like interesting things the novel's doing that it doesn't know that it's doing. But we don't necessarily need to work ourselves hard looking for coherence, <laughs> you know? No way. But those little moments where you think there might be an opening or something, it is a kind of entree into another way of thinking that was very popularly accepted, but not exactly. It was kind of like Cooper was sneaking stuff in kind of Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because people just liked him so much. Well, can you give us a little context and then we can... Yeah, because we have to talk about this because I, I think feel differently in the sense that there's a reason Philip Deloria talks about this these books so much, which is that they're they're only really interesting as novels if you're reading as a historian. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're I, not I, really yeah. for, for people who give a shit about the novel. Yeah. Totally. 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 As a novel guy, this is my first experience with Cooper. That, that tracks, you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't even think of, well, I guess like among the three of us, I am the fussiest about uh, forms. But yeah, I mean, I don't think of myself as a novel formalist right. purist. It just doesn't hold together unless you read it historically. Yeah. And I mean, we're all, you know, we, we're all historicists. And this novel puts the like literature part of my brain to sleep. But my historian right. stuff is like, okay, yeah. all right. What a weird time. And what a weird fucking dude, you know? <laughs> so. But it is what it, I'm just saying that like, there's a reason that historians talk about it. And yeah. at no point yeah. am I like, you're not thinking about what a novel is yeah. because yeah. who 
fucking cares. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? There are other book novels where you're like, you can't just read this as you can't yeah. be a historian and read this and not account for its noveliness, but this yeah. nah. But historians nobody, nobody knock, cares. knock yourself out, use this as evidence, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have well, fun. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy yourselves. Just be home in time for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> they won't, they won't. They have archives to go through. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. We love you, historians, for real. We really do. So there's a lot to say about Cooper. He started off his first novel doing Jane Austen. J- he was reading a Jane Austen novel to his wife, and he was like, I could do that better. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> that is the that. Wow. Yeah. How could anyone read a Jane Austen novel and be like, I think I'm better at novels than this? Particularly a big dumbass. You know? Well, that's why, right? If you were smart, you'd be like, Jane Austen, you did a fucking killer job with the novel. I'm going to do something slightly different. The novel was Persuasion, and he wrote, a, he did a Jane Austen novel called Precaution, and it's one of the worst <gasps> novels of all time. Of it's, course it is. It's really bad. It's really bad. And it's, it, was such a, it was such a good thing that he switched to doing Walter Scott. So part of the reason he did was because he was self-conscious about selling the novel. He was weirdly kind of a Europe guy. Like he had, he had his kids educated in Europe and everything and lived there for a long time. Hilariously, so just a little bit on the criticism, hilariously, the, the original criticism was a lot about whether the novel's probable or improbable, which is sort of hilarious, <laughs> but true. Yeah. yeah. That's a 19th century Chud reviewer for sure, you know. Get, Does get, it have to do with beaver costumes? Yeah. <laughs> yes, only always. So all these reviews, they super take for granted that Cooper is like the American writer, that he's great. Because okay. the way we're talking about it, it's not necessarily clear he's going to be the, like, the guy in that way. We're still and waiting I, on Hawthorne, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, we're waiting for Hawthorne to appear. I am actually going to go through a tiny, teeny, teeny bit of the criticism to just to say sort of a few things to notice. One is that he attained that literary reputation super fast. So the criticism is almost as incoherent as Cooper himself. So the it's like, oh, the plot's improbable, but the details are too probable. The plot has too much adventure, but we need more of it. It doesn't cohere, which is fair enough. <laughs> yeah, so there's one review from these are all from 1826 the publication year and there's john neal wrote in london magazine this review where he calls it a tissue of commonplace indian adventures and improbabilities that rely too much on cooper's fancy and imagination not yeah <laughs> not enough right, in his but observation this is the most, like duh yeah yep yeah anyway forget this guy but this one is funny there's one by this guy john miller who like i would say who these people were, but I won't. <laughs> so John Miller, he is all about the admirable fidelity and peculiar graphic truth of Cooper's representations. He says that last... Yeah. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. He justifies this by, by mentioning his own, quote, personal acquaintance with the Aboriginal tribes of the North American wilderness which, wow. So he says that he makes use of a thousand little peculiarities of habit, gesture, tone, and attitude, which could not possibly have been noted except by familiar and watchful observance from the life. Not You true. just have to read Rousseau and yeah, you got it. You're like yeah. the warlike Indians and the peaceful Indians. And- <laughs> 
connection to the earth or whatever like yeah. racistly in doing indian characters yeah the quote-unquote noble savage which is yeah. like so central to not ju- i mean but it's, it's rousseauian but like he didn't come up with that that's like a that's a big totally. fucking enlightenment trope you know <laughs> big big enlightenment trope time i'll i guess read the <laughs> this bit of this really interesting review so okay so what the what the reviewer says basically is that it doesn't matter if critics like or don't like he's like i'm writing about cooper but it doesn't really matter if i like him or not because quote the public voice has long since confirmed him to the appellation of the american the american novelist and what yeah six years after he started writing it's like long since Whoa. he was the he's the American novelist. How many do they even have at this point? Are we like, well, it's either him or Charles Brockton yeah, Brown? Yeah, I was gonna say it's a Charles yeah. Brockton Brown or or yeah, Cooper. Yeah, I mean, and Brockton Brown is is I think in a funny way like a little too leaky with Europe. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah, to be the American novelist. Mm-hmm. But he t- so what he liked about it, I guess, is the characteristic excellence of this writer is in the rapidity of his incidents, the vividness of his action, and the invention of the machinery of his plot. I don't know. Has he never read a good novel? Because there are thousands of good novels by 1826. Well, let me tell you, um, people loved <laughs> people loved this shit. Yeah, I mean, it's again. People I, the, loved Harry Potter too. People are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> the Walter Scott thing I said at the beginning. I do think that that's true. He's trying to do Walter Scott, but does it? I mean, one Scott's plots, like yeah, they're romancy and pulpy, but they're also compelling and yeah. you know interesting, and also just Scott's understanding of what history is is so much more sophisticated than. I mean, just the, 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 the like, Lukacs is going to look at Scott and be like, you know what, as a communist, I'm totally on board with this account of like history as the set of forces. I mean, there's nothing nearly that sort of sophisticated in Cooper. It's like if a dumb person read Walter Scott and then tried to do that. Yeah, you know? literally, yes. Uh huh. I do really think, though, that Scott's plots do the thing this reviewer says Cooper's do yes, in the yes, sense that like the yes. plot actually moves pretty quickly mm-hmm. for yes. me reading Walter Scott. And yeah. in this, it's just. Yeah just so tiring and then you get to like a wacky ass scene with a slingshot or a bear suit or whatever and then you get back into this like you absolutely do (laughs) and then i don't know if are you going to talk about this but there is all this like post-war criticism because as soon as i saw this in your notes i was like Oh shit! The, I had to pull the Fiedler book off my shelf. Yeah, so there's there's a ton of resurgence of interest in Cooper, 1940 to end end of World War II, like the you know like America as ascendant, and there are a bunch. Henry Nash Smith's Virgin Land is a a um like a touchstone for that stuff, and there are, you can tell from the title that we have problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Already things are afoot. Yes. But also you, you pulled out Leslie Fiedler. He's actually the one he found the secret theme. Miscegenation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but he does he does does sort of concede that the secret theme is not that much of a secret. It's it's quote discoverable by scrutiny of the text, but not felt in the mere act of reading. And basically what he's saying is like contemporary readers couldn't see it. Right. There's okay and Here's also something 
there's a um, Casey Morehouse from the from the mid '60s says basically this is an interesting quote from Cooper's Americans. It is significant that under the circumstances, Hayward still has to request rather formally the aid of Natty. Hayward's military rank is meaningless in the forest where Natty mm. and the Indians are in an aristocracy of talent. Yeah. In hierarchy within that, right? Like mm. that the natives aren't as good at shooty shoot shoot as Hawkeye is, right? So like they're not all the same aristocracy. But no, but also no one is as good at shooty shoot shoot as, as Hawkeye that's is. That's true. Yeah. Know? So yeah. But that's also probably why he's the like he's the sort of like pinnacle of the quote unquote like American devoted like it blends both like native knowledge and and like European whatever the fuck, you know, or I don't know. I mean it's <laughs> Yeah. And by the way, he knows like every native language. He can he can like talk to Natty Bumpo does to talk to anybody. Yeah, I mean Cooper did. Yeah. Cooper did not. So he just yeah. really, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. I'm still stuck on that. Like what he is 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 like a racist libertarian, but who like has this sort of like you know fantasy of connection to like the native as that both helped to establish his kind of claim to the the sort of land. Uh, and I think also just generally does a lot sort of apologetics for genocide. It's like, well, but that's not me. That's like the bad white people or something, you know, something like that. He's so, he's such a weird character. So I kind of regret that we didn't get a chance to do anything on the pioneers because what's funny is that like that book is all about how Natty Bumpo is not one of the pioneers. Is that the first leather stocking, the pioneers? No, it's the second to left. Okay. It's the last one in time. I'll actually, I forgot to do this part. Well, I know at some point I have to jump in with this, like, because reading the Philip Deloria was reading it again, was like, the fake Indian thing is so persistent. Like, it's not just the libertarian fantasy. It's very much a liberal fantasy, too. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I'm, I'm, yeah. And, and honestly, I, you know, <laughs> out of character have let liberalism a bit off the hook in uh <laughs> in my dunks today no you're 100 percent right and and yeah and and honestly like i do feel with the kind of it, like assimilationist fantasy that uh, katie's been described that that you know was part of cooper's outlook that is like liberal imperialism 100 percent. but it's know? not quite assimilationist there's a thing that he wants to preserve and right. this is the tradition of fake indians that's so important is yeah. like this desire to preserve some essence at base, which is right. less, it's not quite the same as assimilationist, but it's this, this you know, kill the Indian, save the man thing, which is like, there's still a trace of the Indian necessary yeah. to be more American. This is where native and native nativism start to sort of converge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, for sure. And and actually that, and again, I'm in no way conflating the the sort of experience in the like British Isles and Ireland with the actual like historical realities of race. But I do think that like you could read a Walter Scott novel and what he's doing with like Scottishness and what like say Mariah Edgeworth is doing with like Irishness as that it's like, okay, but we're now this new form, but we want mm -hmm. to preserve some aspect of the past. Again, I'm not saying like historically that that actually matches the situation with native people in the United States. But I think someone like Cooper would have read those and like, oh, okay, we can do that here, you know. Totally. Well, and it does sort of like um the you're what you're I think have your finger on is is like that race is actually like an incomplete 
category with respect to this analysis. Yes. Right. So it's like, I'm not saying the Irish weren't racialized because they certainly were, but like that the nation, things like the nation form, things like citizenship, the and imperialism and race are that race is like insufficient as the term to describe these things. Yes. No, absolutely. And it's a race is is a process, right? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And that in the Indians are actually like a really troublesome racial category. Right. Yeah. Right. Like a unique in the in the Americas, a unique racial category. Yeah. Because it's not actually a race at all. It's a a citizenship question or a political Mm -hmm. question more than a racial question. But nobody's really any, you know, it's like race isn't real anyway. It's only held up by racism to begin with. So it's like, (laughs) yeah. 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 Okay. So I'm trying to, this is really interesting. And I should have gone back to our our fake Indian touchstone because like, okay, so figure this out please someone like cooper thought that he's like yeah there's a problem with native people and said they're not enough of them we need more (laughs) we gotta get more we just need more like volume or quantity is gonna like do i don't know what to do with it at all yeah yeah like period yeah no that's and is that the thing that he's like well if native if there's interracial intermarriage then that will make more native people and that's good he so he thought that partly he was like pro the indian removal act which is it's not a smart thing to think but what he thought was that okay like what's going on now is that uh native people are being slaughtered and so if we could just move everyone that then that wouldn't happen anymore wasn't that bullshit also like some stuff that like the jackson administration said i mean like the, it was yeah that, that, that this was like this kind of yes. like protective shit um and also again that's that is also like liberal imperialism yes you know? so, yeah. absolutely yeah. that's yeah. i think that was like the missing that was like where my until we found liberalism i w- wasn't quite squaring the circle but i think that does that is who cooper was right right well it's just there's so many dumb things about it so it's hard for me to be like the dumb thing about it because there's like (laughs) i can think of five immediately but one is that like the entire project of settler colonialism is more 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 yeah and so you can't just shove people someplace else and think that you won't want it 20 minutes later right exactly cooper had this utopian fantasy of the like that i don't know it's unclear where he got it yeah like i don't know where he picked this up yeah that he's doing like super duper American fantasy. I obviously American is in quotation marks, like nativeness. But then everybody in the mid century is like, this is he is doing Americanness. He is his project is not totally and and that his project about is not about conservatism in the way that you think it's going to be if you're just mm-hmm. like picturing these books. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also not the genre of racism that we're always familiar with, right? Like, it's actually kind of slippy in our contemporary uh, ideologies of what racism is. Yeah. And and that is, I I don't know, like, uh, someone who, you know, works on a lot on colonialism and and racism in the 18th century at a macro level, of course, I mean, the, the, like white supremacism as a straw continuity, particularly in its like, you know, actual like sort of material effects. But it all, and, and this is the idea of race and racialization as process. Certain things that you think a racist discourse is going to produce, those don't stay the same as you go back in time, right? And and yeah. and and so I, I think it can make it 
a little bewildering and sometimes it can make you like i don't know it can almost spawn these kind of like apologetic readings that are kind of off base because like but wait i would expect him to say this thing about native people and he says this other thing but so then you, okay but like what are still the material facts and also how can we see those like kind of more recent versions of race and racialization kind of like nascent in in this kind of stuff because it's not just like the clunky naked all indian people are bad version of racism like that yes it just certainly isn't that and so yeah it's being racist is just which it is is yeah it's not as simple as that yeah and and you often like and say so for instance the slavery case white supremacist defenses of slavery became increasingly just like biological hierarchies and just just like screechy the closer you got to the civil war and and i think that like you often do see the like white supremacy it it takes this like this different form until it's like well we're, you know we're actually engaged in like a direct kind of genocidal war then suddenly it veers over into like you know wholesale like dehumanization kind of claims yeah i think the thing about cooper is not to try to apologize or pretend it's something it's not but to see the spots where there is actually something interesting happening whether he knows it or not and it has everything to do with race and racism and racialization has Mm -hmm. everything to do with the american project and yeah i think you know he's like the ascendant liberal guy like who lived in europe and who lived in europe and was kind of a fancy lad and who wrote all these books (laughs) about natty bumpo shooting things from like 18 million miles away yeah you know it really smacks of the sort of like liberal fake indian discourse it's so intransigent that it's really good at ignoring the politics of indian making in the sense that that is so embedded in fucking supreme court decisions and shit you know like the qualification of nativeness is actually like governmental in a unique way and so a big example of that is when like the Indian question goes from being a matter of the Department of War to the Department of the Interior, mm-hmm. right? So it's like that's just one shift mm-hmm. that remakes what this category is. And so like the law as a as a definitive racialization racializing set of institutions is just quite different for enslaved people than it is for native people in right. this moment mm-hmm. historically, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're just they're just different. That's not a hierarchy of who's better off, but it's like that liberalism is always pro-Indian in a weird way, right? even if it's like has nothing to do with Indian people. It says that through bureaucracy. That's how yes. it communicates this. Right. Yes. Right. In a federal sense, in yeah. a uniquely federal sense. And it's also that being, being quote unquote pro and thinking of yourself as being pro often has extremely deleterious. Oh, yeah. Facts yeah. for sure. So, oh, man beautiful tradition of trashy shit yeah is like fake indians are all over the place for so like now avatar whatever there's no version of it that's not like delightfully trashy if though i have done some writing on this in the 50s because westerns are like super into fake indians in this moment of like liberal sentimentality that's very insistent that shit not be communist if we're pro-Indian as played by white people, we're doing this version of nativism that's like anti-communist. <laughs> there's tons of movies and they're all very bad, but go see White Feather or, you know, they're so cool. There's t- I haven't seen the 1920s Last of the Mohicans. 
No, I haven't. Oh, yeah. No, that's like the interesting thing is that in that they were way more conservative. About, say, like miscegenation, for example. Yeah. So Alice is the one who dies, I think. And nuts. And Cora. Michael Mann does that too, actually. Oh, shit. I forgot about that. Yeah. Alice like throws herself off a waterfall. What? Yeah. It's, yeah. (laughs) Does Cora die too? No. But her romance is with Hawkeye, right? Yes. Yes. In the 20s movie, it is for sure. Okay. Okay. In both the 20s and the 90s versions? remember that in the 90s one but it's, tristan you're the yeah it is, yeah it, it is yeah well fake indian and a not black lady could not black <laughs> black lady that yeah. sounds right yeah <laughs> match made in heaven that's hold sure holding up like the liberal yeah, <laughs> racialized sure. discourses yeah, absolutely yeah no for sure yeah they, right well, yeah the, the 90s film definitely is of its own moment <laughs> we'll say that uh this is the like thing that we have talked about before, which is like Frederick Jameson, that historical objects are telling us more about their present than they are about their... Oh, yeah. About what they are. Oh, yeah. 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 Right? Sh- and so like every version of Last of the Mohicans is in some sense the exemplar for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like the Scarlet Letter, whatever version, or the any Jane Austen adaptation, like whatever you're doing is telling us a whole fuckload about your moment. Yeah, for sure. And I'm going to throw in now the dates of some of the novels. Okay, so we have these are the ones around Last of the Mohicans. So we have Pioneers, which is was written or published in 1823. It's about the 1790s. We have this one, Last of the Mohicans. So it's published in 1820 and he was like he cranked them out. But it was published in 1826 well, and it's yeah. about the 1750s. And then Deer Slayer you have in 1841 about the 1740s. So you have three novels and then a gap and then another three. And then you get the youngest version of Natty Bumpo in the very last novel, hmm. which is it's doing like a Benjamin yeah. Button act with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah. Sure. And like you have the American Revolution in the middle and just Cooper doesn't touch it. Incredible. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. That's a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, should we get to, Katie, it's not a game, it's a experiment? It's not a game, it's, yes, it's an experiment. It's a, let's, in, we have some nice things in life and let's enjoy them. I've got some Mark Twain. The queen's still dead. <laughs> the queen's still dead. We have a nice time. Mark Twain is better than D.H. Lawrence. You heard it here first. <laughs> oh, yeah. In part, like, kind of go through some of the literary offenses and just kind of, just kind of do some jazz here. So the piece opens with these professors saying, uh, Natty Bumbo's great. I'm sorry, which piece are you talking about? Oh, um, Fenimore Cooper's Literary Offenses. This is Mark Twain. Okay. And um, he's got these quotes by these fancy professors who are like, they are pure works of art. One of the <laughs> gr- very greatest characters <laughs> in fiction. Don't listen to professors is the answer mm-hmm. to this question. Cooper is the greatest artist in the domain of romantic fiction yet produced by America. Okay. So that was Wilkie Collins, author of The Moon. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. But Mark Twain has some other opinions. Just going to read a little bit. So he says, Cooper's art has some defects. In one place, Deer Slayer, and in the restricted space of two-thirds of a page, Cooper has scored 114 offenses against literary art out of a possible 115. (laughs) (laughs) 
it breaks the record. And this is about the deer slayer. He's not at the deer slayer, by the way, but this is. Yeah, this got, works too, sure. Yeah, that's fine. Same. Yeah, same thing. There are 19 rules governing literary art in the domain of romantic fiction. Some say 22. In Deerslayer, Cooper violated 18 of them. These 18 require that the tale shall accomplish something and arrive somewhere, but the Deerslayer tale accomplishes nothing and arrives in air. <laughs> they require that the episodes of a tale shall be necessary parts of the tale and shall help to develop it. But as the Deerslayer tale is not a tale and accomplishes nothing and arrives nowhere, the episodes have no rightful place in the work. Since there was nothing for them to develop. Three, they require true. Th- <laughs> true. Three, they require that the personages in a tale shall be alive, except <laughs> in the case of corpses, and that always the reader shall be able to tell the corpses from the others. Oh, Sam, that was a good one. <laughs> yep. 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 <laughs> well, corpses can get married and last the Mohicans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and before they require that the personages in a tale, both dead and alive, shall exhibit a sufficient excuse for being there. <laughs> this detail has also been overlooked in the Deerslayer tale. If you put a character in a novel, why are they there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Like, why? To decide they... to do weird dances and sing Hey Nani Nani yeah. in a battle. Why is David Gamut there? Well, for comic relief, and he is funny, but not what the way that Cooper attacks it to be. Uh, he just has knobby knees. Yeah. Cooper goes out of his way to describe how skinny that dude is. Yeah, yeah he's got a thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, this is a tough one. This rule number five: they require that when the personages of a tale deal in conversation, the talk shall sound like human talk and be talk such as human beings would be likely to talk in the given circumstances and have a discoverable meaning, also a discoverable purpose and show of relevancy, and remain in the neighborhood of the subject at hand and be interesting to the reader and help out the tale and stop when the people cannot think of anything more to say. Mm-hmm, this requirement mm-hmm. has been ignored from the beginning of the deer slayer tale to the end of it hey natty what are we going to eat for dinner a true woodsman asks not where his meal comes from in the 1730s when i was somewhere else in the americas this tri- other tribe that you haven't heard of here's five pages of me talking <laughs> if we were to eat bun buns it would be insufficient but if we were to eat squirrel perhaps the gaminess would bequeath on us the dreams of our parentage the knowledge i bear as a white man with no cross <laughs> i am not quite as good at stepping on nothing as the indian but almost as good also better with this gun have you heard about the gun i have much to tell you it has no bullets <laughs> pew pew yeah. oh well all right oh boy number seven they require that when a personage talks like an illustrated gilt edge tree calf hand-tooled seven dollar friendships offering at the beginning of a paragraph he shall not talk like a negro minstrel in the end of it <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> this rule is flung down and danced upon in the deer slayer tale. Uh, wow. This again, Tristan, when you say like, have you taken a beginning creative writing class? Like yeah. in intro to fiction, they tell you like your characters should have a distinctive voice. <laughs> These are the basics of writing fiction that is not incredibly fucking irritating. <laughs> and I would just note again, I just think it deserves saying again, James Fenimore Cooper read Jane Austen. Yeah. Yeah. Whose characters are so well realized that you can pick them out the voices in 
Pride and Prejudice without any error whatsoever. <laughs> well, you know, he was reading Jane Austen in his rustic log cabin out there. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, he was. He's a fucking like New York aristocrat. He was in the city. He was literally wrote this in New York City. Yeah. Oh God! Wow. I think he should have, you know, gone camping or something. Yeah. yeah, maybe once or twice. Once or twice. Here's the real one, and I can I can truly stop anytime. But this rule, I think, is a real tough one. They require that crass stupidity shall not be played upon the reader as, quote, the craft of the woodsman, the delicate art of the forest, by either the author or the people in the tale. This rule is persistently violated. Oh, yeah. Crass stupidity abounds. Yeah. So apart from that, just twig the twigs. Shall I with the twigs now? Yes, give yeah, us the official good, official yeah, account that, of the twigs. That'll, that'll be a, a nice that'll wrap little us up mark, beautifully. Mark Twain yes. bow, yeah. Okay, and it will mark Twain. You get the prize. I did a boat joke. Yeah, you did. That's yeah, you one. did. <laughs> You've been hanging out with Tristan <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another stage property that Cooper pulled out of his box pretty frequently was his broken twig. He prized his broken twig above all the rest of his effects and worked it the hardest. It is a restful chapter in any book of his when somebody doesn't step on a dry twig and alarm all the reds and whites for 200 yards around. Every time a Cooper person is in peril and absolute silence is worth $4 a minute, he is sure to step on a dry twig. There may be a hundred handier things to step on, but that wouldn't satisfy Cooper. Cooper requires him to turn out and find a dry twig, and if he can't do it, to go and borrow one. In fact, the leather series should ought to have been called the broken twig series oh my god this is again like you can write like people talk 200 fucking years ago easily it's not a problem (laughs) and he's no and he's also 100 percent right with the you could have gone for some variety like say what if uh you know natty bumpo is walking along and accidentally steps on a beaver's tail and then the beaver's like (laughs) Now I stoked my toe. (laughs) And Hayward's like, is that a guy? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) That sounded like a man. (laughs) Yeah, who was that dude? (laughs) Thank you both. Like, I knew that it would be worth rereading this trash heap (laughs) to talk about it. Anyway, this, so as a preview, there Mm -hmm. is a Better Red Than Dead Slash, you're tall, but I'm standing in front of you with friend of the pod, Devin Daniels and Ethan Smith. I have been on this podcast before. It was amazing. There's a crossover episode in the works, and you'll be seeing characters from The Practice come into an episode of Allie McBeal. And if you don't get that 20-year-old joke, which is not even funny, you know, go look it up. We will be watching and talking about the Michael Mann, Last of the Mohicans. We are effing pumped. Check Twitter for updates on that. We will preview it on the air. Ethan and Devin will too. We're excited. Anyway, this has been Better Red Than Dead. You can find me on Twitter at Tesla-Saurus. You can find Tristan at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie at Katie Crywo. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Red Pod. And email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com. But only if you have more alternatives for broken twigs. Because truly, you could be in the movie Big and dance on a giant <laughs> keyboard and that would be funnier. <laughs> And better than the billions of $4 broken twigs that this 
novelists. <laughs> like, what a device. Yeah. yeah. What a device, my friend. <sighs> Just get Darcy in a rainstorm, please. Our intro music is up, Bronstein by the Redskins, and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Rate, review, subscribe. Next week, we are getting to Richard Wright's The Man Who Lived Underground. So excited about that. With William Wells Brown Clotel on deck after that. So thank you, comrades.